one. Hi everybody, I'm Wong Shoes, and on the other line, my uh, talented co-host, hello Patricia. Hello Walden. Just for a repeat, it is April 8th, 2014, which is a Tuesday, and that means we are not live for telephone calls. So, it's important because we have a guest, Michael Truxman. Michael has written a book that I just love. I'm going to go to bed with it. Um, Basil Rathbone, His Life and His Films, and that is one of a mountain of work that Michael has put out for us. Um, And I'll ask him to give us some information about other works that he's got in the works. In the meantime, um, welcome, Michael Drogsman. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh, this is such a treat for me. And I know you know that Basil Rathbone is at the top of my, oh, gosh, I love his work. Um, Can you give us a bit about your background and how you wound up choosing Basil Rathbone as a subject. Well, I'm originally from Seattle, and um, I've always been a movie buff, always loved film, but, and, you know, I uh, always, despite my, my parents trying to talk me out of it, always intended to get into the film business one sort or another. So right after I graduated from college, I uh, got in my car and I drove down to Los Angeles and I stayed there for 45 years, <laughs> and um, I started writing books. You know, I, I started a public relations firm, and, uh, you know, I had a lot of major clients, and, uh, but it wasn't satisfying me, you know, my artistic edge, and um, I uh, decided to start writing. You know, I, I, this was a time, this was the um, early 70s, when the, uh, the films of books were very popular the films of Gary Cooper, the films of Clark Gable. And so I decided to do one of those, but I want, but rather than doing just essays about their films, I decided to go out and interview the people who knew the subject of my book, which was, ha- which was more fun than writing it, because I got to meet some fantastic people. Um, my first book was on Paul Muni, and director Mervyn Leroy... Uh, who sort of became a, a, a second mentor to me, you know, wrote the introduction. And so that book came out, and I was looking around for a, another a, a subject for a second book. And the, the, the novel, The 7% Solution, had just come out, and it, be, and it, it become a bestseller. And uh, there was a new interest fresh interest in Sherlock Holmes. And so it just hit me that the perfect book for an, uh, the perfect subject for a second book would be Basil Rathbone. And you know, and I although I enjoyed the Holmes films, I really enjoyed Rathbone more in the swashbucklers he did with Flynn, like Robin Hood and and Captain Blood and then he did uh, Mark Zorro with Tyrone Power. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was my real interest in Be- Rathbone. And um, so that was my second book, and it became a bestseller in the genre. But unfortunately, after about a, after it had been out, of, out about a year or so, the publisher went out of business. And whereas I had it in my contract that, you know, if they stopped publishing the book, I, ha- I had the opportunity to buy 
they, they weren't you do, uh, doing books on computers then. They were doing them on regular printing presses. Mm-hmm. And I had the right to buy the plates. But they, they violated the contract. They destroyed the plates for the silver contract. So the book became out of print for 35 years. And it just went, went back into print. And, and it was selling. If you went into a bookstore, you would pay as much as $100 or more for a copy of the book. Uh, so uh, we, we, uh, my new publisher, uh, Bear Manor, Bear Manor Media, we, we, we took a, we, t- we took a copy of the book because there were no plates and, and we, uh, we photographed it. I wrote a new introduction and we came out with a new, new version. Uh, I would say it's been out about a year or so now. From the conversation we had before we started recording this interview, you mentioned that there are sections in the new book, the one 35 years later, that have been amplified, particularly about Basil Rathbone's wife, and I do want to get into that. So maybe now is a good time to do it. Well, well, actually, that's, that's not quite true. I wrote a new introduction, and... Uh, the, the book, with the exception of the introduction and the uh, my picture on the back cover, which is what I more what I look like today than I looked like thirty five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it's a pretty cool picture. Uh, um, uh, the book is exactly the same book that that came out thirty five years ago, or about thirty seven years ago, or whatever it is now. Uh, but I have since. You know, I, I have a collection of plays that I've written, uh, mostly one-person plays about Hollywood personalities, co- collectively called the Hollywood Legends. There's Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, Carol Lombard, uh, Errol Flynn. And the last play I wrote for this group was a one-man play about Basil Rathbone. And there was a lot of information that I wa- be, wasn't able to use in, in my book, um, because at the time I wrote the book, Weta Rathbone, uh, Basil's widow, was still alive. And if I'd said the things I found out about her in my book, she probably would have sued me. <laughs> uh, and about a, uh, and she died uh, a, a month before the book came out. And when I, I, I'd read that she'd passed away, I called the publisher, and we were able to, once again, we weren't working with a computer. We were working with typeset, which is much more expensive to change. But we were able to stick in two or three paragraphs covering her death and some of the, you know, very briefly, some of the things that people had said about her. So uh, when I wrote the play, I started going further into research. In fact, I talked to um, uh, three grandchildren, uh, Rathbone's three grandchildren, and they gave me an earful about her. And that is all uh, included in the play, which is called Rathbone, and it's available um, on Amazon for those who are interested. I'm interested. Okay. I, I, I can't wait to read it. I'm going to try to separate his professional life from his personal life, but they're so integrated it's going to be difficult to do, so we'll probably wind up hopping back and forth. 
in his career, he hit apexes several times. If, I'm, if I understood information about him correctly, he started in silent films. Is that correct? Yes, he he he, he did some silent films, and the, the his um, in in England. I think they were all. I, I I have to check. It's been you know. I it's been a long time since I've read this. But as I recall, they were done in England. The movie that brought him to fame was *The Last of Mrs. Cheney*, which incidentally has just been has just been released onto DVD for the first time. Um, uh, and I've never seen it, but it was with Norma Shearer. It's just been released on the DVD with um, uh, by Warner Archive. So if anybody's interested. But this, but it established him as a leading man. But he was not, you know, he stayed in Hollywood, and he really was not leading man material because the films he made, whereas that movie was a success, the films he made subsequent to that were not. And he wound up going back to New York and, and appearing on the stage, and then he did not come back to Hollywood until he did, was offered uh, the part in David Copperfield, and which really established him as a heavy, which he remained for most of his career. Yeah, yeah, and it was really, from my perspective anyway, it was a shame that he was typecast a couple of times because he had such a broad ability to make people smile. Now, where did the theater come in for him? He was a very accomplished actor in theater. Was that before movies? Oh yes, yes. He the thing that brought him to fame um, in the United States was a play called The Swan, which was made into a movie many years later with Grace Kelly and Al- Alec Guinness, and uh, I think Louis Jordan played uh, the Rathbone part. And uh, you know, he he became a star on the Broadway stage, uh, and then of course movies beckoned. And, you know, he was in films, and he was working. I mean, he was one of the busiest actors in the business during the 30s. And, um, he, you know, then he made the, and he freelanced. And, you know, so so he would go into a picture, you know, all the different studios. I remember Errol Flynn was always unhappy because he was the star of the movie, and, Ra- and Rathbone was making much more money than him because Flynn was under contract, and Rathbone was coming in as a... Uh, as a freelance actor and made more money, you know, a much bigger salary. Uh-huh. Rathbone's career sort of took a dive uh, when, he, when he finally signed a contract with MGM. Uh, it was the beginning of the war, and he wanted to, um, he wanted to have a, a guaranteed income because he wanted, you know, to do war work, you know, uh, uh, do his... You know, war effort, yeah. War effort work, and um, so he signed with MGM, and and they put him in junk. I mean, really lousy. You know, at, before he had worked at MGM and he'd done uh, Anna Karenia, he had done David Copperfield, he had done A Tale of Two Cities, he had he had done um, Romeo and Juliet, for which he'd been nominated for Academy Award. He played Tybalt. Uh, and, and other films. But, you know, once he signed, they started sticking him in these B-movies, and then he had done, you know, the two, prior to this, the two Sherlock Holmes films for Fox, and then 
Universal wanted to do the modern day, in the 1940s, series of Holmes films. And had he been free, he could have, you know, so MGM, as part of his contract, loaned him to to Universal to do the, the Holmes films, which were B-movies. And so he did 12 of those. You know, if he had been freelance, and, and he could have gotten much more money for doing it. But, you know, Michael, why did they? Why did MGM first cast him in what you would consider junk movies? The man was brilliant, and he had such a track record. Probably because they didn't. You know, they he, he, they wanted. You know, the studios wanted. You know, good actors and their salary. You know, they, they figured they'd use him, uh, but. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it'd be, so why not have him under contract for a flat fee, and we, then we can use him wherever we want him. And uh, I, mean, I think the best movie he made when he was with MGM was a picture with uh, Fred McMurray and Joan Crawford called Above Suspicion. Um, but once again, you know, in fact, it's, I think in all the movies he, uh, he, pl- he played the heavy. Yeah. When you say junk movies, the first thing that popped into my head was that if the companies, if the the um, production companies were making junk movies, they needed something to make them more popular and get people into yeah. the theaters, and that well, might have been Basil well, Rathbone. Is well, that this, a reasonable? This, this is well, you know, he, but he was. They always, I'm sure, planned to use him as a supporting player. This was a time in Hollywood when the when the you have to remember bef- before the consent decree, where the stu- the studios lost the theaters. You know, it used to be, uh, and, and I think that happened in the late forties. Uh, you know, I, but you have you know the studios had this made the movies, released the movies, and owned the theaters, and they had to to each of the major studios. To keep their theaters full, you know, new new product had to turn out a certain amount of movies every year, and so it, you know, I mean, not every one of them is going to be uh, yeah. uh, gone with the wind or what have you know, and to keep their costs down uh, reasonable, you had a certain am- amount of actors and directors and writers under cro- contract. The, this is, you know, mm-hmm. actors really didn't come into their own until the studio system started to, to fail and, and in the late 40s, early 50s, and actors were then, you know, were, not, were found themselves without contracts, and they, they went out and made their own deals. And, you know, yeah. the, better, the bigger the name, the, the, um, the more money they can command. I think the first, if I'm not, I think I'm correct in saying that, that the first, Major deal, and with a percentage deal, I think Jimmy Stewart took a, a minimum, I like you know, scale or whatever it was, and a percentage of the picture for Winchester '73 at Universal, and and it was a huge hit, and he made a fortune. Um, but Rathbone was never in that position, you know, and he made a lot of enemies when he in. What was it? Forty-six, I think it was, or I, I'm, I'm not sure on the date. Uh, he quit. You know, his, his MGM contract was up. 
he was doing the, the Holmes radio show at the same time as the, uh, uh, he, he was making movies, and he quit. He said, I'm not going to do it anymore. Uh, because I, I, and I think the thing that really put it over the top was they cast him in this picture with Red Skelton called Bathing Beauty, <laughs> which is atrocious. Esther Williams was in it. And, uh, and Basil Rathbone was in that? Yeah, and the end of, oh, God, and the, the end of the movie, he gets thrown into a swimming pool in, in, in tuxedo, white tie and tails, as I recall. I've only seen it once. It's a, you know, I, I've yeah. never been a big Red Skelton fan. but uh, Yeah, but. so that was before he threw in the towel and said, I'm going yes. back to uh, that was, I think... <clears throat> you know the last movie he made for Metro, and then he mm-hmm. he, he, uh, he then he did the last and he, you know Universal's and uh, well, the, the radio show they, they wanted to continue continue the radio show and the the Holmes movies, but he he said no. And Lou Wasserman, and you'll read this in my play. Uh, Lou Wasserman said to him, you, "If if you do this, because Lou Wasserman was then the uh, head, the top agent in MCA." Uh, he says, if you do this, you will never work in another important, uh, you uh, have an important role in, in another important picture in this town. And Rathbone went back to New York, and he did a couple plays. Then he did The Heiress, for which he won the Tony. And when they made the movie, they used Ralph Richardson in his part, who had done the show in London, rather than Rathbone. And, uh, oh boy! Yeah, and you know that's and Olivia Havilland, of course, won the Oscar for that. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, he did he he did do some major films, uh, uh, but not not really. They were they were not great films, but they were you know they, he did a picture with Bogart uh, called um, We're No Angels. He did the the Court Jester with Danny Kaye, which was terrific. You know, he did. Um, the last major film he did, but he only had a small role, was the last hurrah with uh, Spencer Tracy, and then he started doing you know the horror movies, you know the Roger Corman movies. Yeah. Would you describe Basil Rathbone as a man, as a person, aside from his acting and the evolution he went through from the time he arrived from England to work in the States through his second marriage with Rita? Can you break that question down in smaller parts? I, I certainly can, but you know, I mean, you talk about. I mean, you're writing um, me. You want me to write an essay here? Yes, yes. You talk about a macro approach here. <laughs> okay. Describe the history of the world. Yes, exactly, exactly. Would you do that? Okay. When Basil Rathbone came to America to begin his act and began his acting career, what was he like as a person? I think he was very insecure. Um, he, uh, you know, he was just interested in the acting. He really didn't wasn't career conscious. And he met Weta, and and Weta uh, was not what she pretended to be. Uh, what what she wanted the world to think, um, as you will read in my play. Uh, and which I couldn't say in this book, but Rita had been married once or twice before. She her name was not really Rita. She, you know, she 
the background, her public background was not what it was, what it, re- it was not... Authentic. Authentic, which I actually I didn't find out until I started researching the play. In fact, you know, I actually stumbled across that, and which was one of the reasons I decided to write the play. But uh, any, but she believed in him. She, you know, came up with a career pan, pan career path for him, um, and she's the one who wanted to go to him to go to Hollywood. She negotiated a great deal for him. And I, they were in Hollywood for a few years, you know, doing Last of Cheney and, and those films. He wanted to go back to New York and work in the theater, and I think they had sort of a falling out, uh, you know, a bit of a uh, dispute on... She, she, she liked the Hollywood life, uh, you know, because it's, it's very glamorous. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when... She, when um, he went back to New York. Thalberg, Irving Thalberg of MGM, was sort of pissed off at him for uh, uh, his, uh, you know, walking away from. I forget the movie. Oh, uh, there was a movie that he was supposed to do. Can't remember the name of it, but John Barrymore did it instead. So when he came back a few years later with um, David Copperfield, you know, he was always from that point on. In the important films, he was always a supporting. It was always supporting roles. He, except for the Holmes movies, and maybe a couple. Well, he did Son of Frankenstein, which he didn't want to do, but he did had to do it for the money. Which, for me, is the best of all the Frankenstein uh, movies. Uh, but you know, he had to work for the money because she kept spending it, and. Uh, she was very difficult. She was very spoiled. She, uh, um, I don't know if we, have we talked about this before, that was it before we went on the air, that she really was responsible for the breakup between he and his son. Um, he had been, uh, he had been married before in England, and he, and whereas she was instrumental in a reunion, bringing the boy when he was a teenager to Hollywood um, uh, and, and living with him. When the boy got married, uh, she was the cause of uh, the split uh, because she wanted to give the, the, uh, the, uh, the son and his, wa- his new wife a house as a wedding gift, but she wanted to de- decorate it, and the, the bride wanted to decor- uh, decorate her own house, and... Um, they didn't speak for years. In fact, the grandchildren who I interviewed for my play, uh, one of them had never met their grandfather, and two of them had only met him once. And it was a very awkward situation. How sad. It was. How sad. And he well, always deferred to her. He always deferred to her. It, it, you know, that's, that's anathema to the character we see on the screen. He was strong, he was decisive, no matter what role he was in, he was a very strong person. And what you're telling us is that in private life, he was not that way. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's true. 
and um, that's true. He was uh, he was very likable. People liked him, but nobody really liked her. Isn't that interesting, Jack yeah. Benny all over again, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, they didn't they didn't like her because they knew that she was a facade as opposed to a, an authentic person. Well, you know these parties. Um, she was a, she was a cold person. She she, um, she was a cold person, and uh, they, they made fun of her. But these parties behind uh, behind her back. They didn't uh, mind coming to the parties, though. Well, they'd come to the parties, you know, because I mean, you know, they'd had uh, Yasha Heifetz playing, and they they'd have you know major you you know I mean they were major major the the, the most talked about parties. In the town, and if you were in Hollywood society, you would always go to these parties. Yasha Heifetz. Yeah. Wow, that's a party. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 a cotillion. It is a White House event. My I know. gosh. Yeah. Isn't that incredible? But when he left the Sherlock Holmes, and I want to talk about Sherlock Holmes in a minute, but when he left and bailed out of the Sherlock Holmes persona or thought he could because he was afraid of being typecast he was already typecast um you know he didn't have anything to worry about it was a a done deal in radio he went to and this was like mm, 41 42 he went to a radio show that was sponsored by fatima cigarettes Mm. and the name of the show was fatima and you know how many times Fatima was mentioned in there. And it was supposed to be a lighthearted mystery. And it was an absolute catastrophe. The man was, I mean, it, it makes, it pains me when I listen to this show. <laughs> I have a collection of really awful shows. And these two, there are only two surviving, four, I guess, four surviving episodes. And all four of them will bring you to tears. Now, what happened when he moved out of Sherlock Holmes, that he would settle for such an awful situation. Well, he had, well he didn't leave Sherlock Holmes until uh, the second half of the forties. Second I half, okay. So forty six, forty seven, something like that. This makes it even worse. He, they did try to do a Sherlock Holmes play in New York. It lasted three performances. His, uh, we'd have wrote it, and it was supposed to have been terrible. Um, uh, but, you know, he was at a point where he had to take, you know, because of her spending, he had to take anything that came along. I mean, why would the man do, uh, of his caliber, do a movie like Ghost in the Invisible Bikini or Hail Billy's in a haunted house? Yes. You know, if he didn't need the money. Mm -hmm. He, he, you know, he, uh, he did theater. I have, I, I picked up on eBay, uh, a few months ago, I've got a program signed by him and the rest of the cast of a production of the Winslow Boy he had done in Chicago, and uh, you know, an autograph thing. Which, um, uh, but he was doing plays all the time. He he did this one man show. He was he he tour colleges, but it, you know, he died of a heart attack. He he she he he worked himself to death to support her. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, we did typecast in Fatima. I, I just, it, it just breaks my heart when I think about what he settled for 
after the Sherlock Holmes series. Yeah. Um, well, you know, he, he didn't have a choice. No, I, I realize that now. I didn't recognize it um, fully. I suspected it, but I didn't recognize it fully, that it, it was strictly a financial thing. Yeah. And I didn't know how bad the financial end of it was until I read your book, which, incidentally, is Basil Rathbone, His Life and His Films by Michael Druxman. We're talking with Michael right now. We are not live, so no phone calls. I'm sorry, folks. Um, But if you have any questions, if you email me, and I'll give you my email later. Everybody knows my email. Um, I will forward them to him. Can we talk a little bit about Nigel Bruce and the magic he had with Basil Rathbone? Oh, they were very, very good friends. Uh, uh, but the friendship ended when uh, Basil quit uh, Holmes because, you know, that, that, that knocked Bruce out of a job, too. Um, Tom Conway, uh, um, uh, George Saunders' brother took over the part of Holmes on radio briefly, but still, you know, it was, uh, Bruce didn't work that much after Holmes. Um, but, you know, they would uh, uh, be in the radio uh, the radio uh, studio, and the director would give, give them in a direction that they didn't like, and they'd throw donuts at the window. <laughs> you know, donuts at the director, you know, be in the directing booth. Yes. Uh, they would mix up, you know, uh, Bruce would go out of the room uh, and uh, Basil would write dirty dirty words in his script while I was gone, which <laughs> was frustrating. You know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I, one of my publicity clients for many years was Gail Gordon, you know, from the Lucille, Lucille Ball show. Mm-hmm. And I started working on this book, and one day he said, hey, why, why aren't you talking to me? I said, what are you talking about? He says, I was Inspector Lestrade on the uh, Sherlock Holmes radio show. And uh, so he gave me a lot of these stories, you know, about uh, what between, you know, the things that went on mm-hmm. between the two of them. But I talked to, you know, like the, the director of the show. I talked to um, the, the producer of, of several of the films. And it was a very close relationship until uh, Rathbun quit. Is that something that Rathbone would have discussed with Nigel Bruce before he did it? I honestly do. I can't. I don't know. I, I don't know. You yeah, probably, I realize I would be asking for an educated guess on you, this yeah, one. Yeah, you, you, you realize that uh, that Rathbone was had been had passed away what eight nine years before I even started on this book. So, yes. So uh, the closest I could come was talking to Wida and. Um, she was not the world's greatest interview, you know, either. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. imagine that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she was not two personas to, to yeah. uh, support there. Yeah, that's interesting. The practical jokes really amused me. Um, Basil Rathbone was an athletic person, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that among your favorite works that he put out were the swashbuckling movies where he crossed swords with Tyrone Power. And he was actually, and this is from my memory, I believe he was an expert fencer. He was considered the best of all the swordsmen in uh, in Hollywood who did these swashbucklers. He he could have killed Tyrone Power and Errol Flynn in a second if they were were going at it for real. He he, was... 
there was nobody better than Basil until he he came up against Danny Kay in the in the Corchester uh, because Basil you know was getting on in years then, and and D- Danny you know was very quick and there were there are some shots where Basil is doubled in that movie in in their final uh, sword fight. Really? Yeah, yeah. Which is a fun movie. I let, you know, I think it's it's my favorite Danny Kaye movie of anything he ever did. I say it's a very, you know, uh, the vessel with the pestle. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, it's a hysterical movie, and it's got a great score. And uh, I think it's probably Danny Kaye's most popular movie. Wow. Yeah. Now he did television as well. Yes, he did um, the Lark on TV, I believe. Uh, he did the Lark. Wait, 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 let me, uh, I'm not sure if he did the Lark or not. I'd have to, that I'd have to, you know, once again, it's been a while since I've even looked at the book, and, but he did do a lot of TV, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot of um, uh, Playhouse 90 type of stuff, you know, the, uh, the, the live television, he yes. did a lot of that. He did a, I, I know he did a Dr. Kildare, which was very popular, um, but I'd, I'd have to go. I'd have to thumb through, through the book. Yeah, well, uh, not not really. You got to remember, I wrote this forty years ago, <laughs> and and two years ago, without really rereading it, you know, we came out with. But I didn't really reread it again, you know, because yes. we just photographed sure. the book I and I wrote an introduction. My God, with thirty books and another one and plays, why would you read something that's been published already? <laughs> you know it. it Usually when I finish something, unless there is a reason to go back with it, to go back to it, I never look at it again. That's a familiar phrase to our listeners. I have said so many times, once I write something, I never go back to it. I don't want to know what an editor did to it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, um, uh, you know, right now I'm working with some, some voice actors about, doing uh, some of my plays on audio. Uh, uh-huh. We already have um, my Orson Welles play and my Clara Bow play are already on audio. And uh, I'm talking to uh, this one actor about doing Basil Rathbone. And uh, so I'll, I will go back to the play version and and uh, because I'm going to direct him over, the, you know, d- direct it. And, uh, but unless there's a reason, you know, I have to mm-hmm. look up something or whatever, I don't look at these, but you know, yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I understand. Yeah, just I mean, it's it's finished. You're a forward thinker, and yeah. you're working on a current project. Working right, backwards which I'm not is going not to a good tell thing. You what it is? <laughs> I beg your pardon. <laughs> which I'm not going to tell you what it is because <laughs> that's you right. know it's, an, it's another Hollywood story. Yeah. You've got more in the works, so right. we just have to we have to watch for your name because you're not sharing anything else about it. Uh, in 1939, Basil Rathbone did some work with Lux Radio Theater. Sherlock Holmes, he did 275 episodes of Sherlock Holmes. He did the movies in 1942. He was in silent films. He made the transition to television. That is an extraordinary career. Yes, it is. I, I, it, it's mind-boggling to recognize that a single person can go from, from theater and silence and all the way through to television and still wind up doing 
B-class work because well, that's what he go, had to accept. You, you go where the work is. You go where it's, the work it, is. You know, I mean, when I, you know, I after I quit my uh, my PR business, you know, I wanted just to write, and and you know, somebody comes to me with a, I want you to write this movie script, and. You know, it's not a subject that really interests me, but they're paying my fee. I got to pay my bills. I'll write the script. You know, and it's it's you you mm-hmm. go where the work is. I understand that, that part. That's. I mean, truly, you're you're in a fragile business. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, luckily, you know, I'm 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 essentially retired now, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, I, I write what I want to write. I mean, if somebody calls me up, which they do, you know, uh, fairly often, and they say, I want you to write this, I'll pay you, or I, I want your input on this. I, I, I do a lot of story conferences. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, you know, writer, writer will call me in and, and have me critique his story, so, you know, what, what it needs, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, uh, I do these... Um, you know, I do comic cons where I, I have my books. I, I, I talk to groups. I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going up to Gainesville, Texas, next month. They're having a writers, you know, for writers. And, mm-hmm, writers you know, conference. And then um, in September, I'm going to um, McKinney, Texas. They're having uh, the Spirit of the Cowboy Festival, where I'm. You know, I've written a, a western that is has a big following cause 20 years old it's called cheyenne warrior and uh, you know so uh, <laughs> eclectic you yeah. were you, you you have the word eclectic tattooed on your chest well you yeah. know i love westerns i've uh-huh. only written one but it's my that and gangster movies are my favorite genres i, oh, mean, my I wrote goodness. a film called which they screwed up but it's it called dillinger and capone and and uh when I went to Chicago a couple of years ago for the first time, the first place I said, I want to go to the Biograph Theater where they shot Dillinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like going where these things happen. <laughs> oh, boy, another tourist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's... You know, I, last uh, May, uh, they did my Carol Lombard play in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which uh-huh. is her hometown. They flew me in. And one of the things, aside from her childhood home that I visited, I went out to the cemetery and looked at the grave, you know, took a picture of the grave of Homer Van Meter, who ran with Dillinger and is buried there. You know, he was he was a member of the Dillinger uh-huh. gang. And the thing that I couldn't believe is that there were fresh flowers on the grave. Oh, my. <laughs> and, and he's been dead since the 30s. Somebody remembers. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. I have a Bugsy Siegel story for you later. Oh, well, you know my con- connection with Bugsy Siegel, don't you? No. I used to live in, uh, in Agora, California. Uh-huh. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas now, by the way. I didn't uh-huh. aware of that. But one of my neighbors was a guy by the name of Eddie Canizero. And, my f- <laughs> and he, he was known in the... Do you know this story? No. No. Uh, this is true. He he was known. He had been in the had something to do with the mob years before. We're talking early seventies, uh, and he was known in that neighborhood because he loved cats. And he every night at six o'clock he'd go up to this one corner, and cats would congregate, and he'd feed them. So my first book had come out, my book on Paul Muni, and 
I was sort of a, you know, a minor celebrity in the neighborhood, and, and one day there's a knock on the door, and it's Eddie. And he says, I'd like to talk to you about something. I want to do a book about my years with the mafia. And I said, well, you know, Eddie, The Godfather came out last year. Godfather 2 is coming out next year. And there's been 20 million books on the mob. Unless you have something really sensational to say, I, uh, you know, I don't think there's a market for a book on the, on the mafia anymore. And he says, well, what if I told you that I was the guy that pulled the trigger on Bugsy Siegel? <laughs> That'll work. And I said, you know, this is something you don't really want to know. No. <laughs> and I said, well, Eddie, are you aware that there's no statute of limitations on murder? He said, no, I didn't know that. Oh, You're not going to you say anything it? about this. <laughs> anyway, we, I never saw, I, I don't think I ever saw it again, Eddie, again. And, I, you know, over the years, I would tell this story, Oh, you know what, cocktail parties or you yeah. know, things like that. And then Eddie died in the 80s, and it was, let's see, Siegel, Siegel was killed in 47, I believe. So in 1997, uh, the L.A. Times ran this big front-page story on um, the still unsolved Bugsy Siegel. And, and story, you know, and a huge story. And in there, they talked about Eddie Cannizzaro had evidently made a deathbed con- confession to, um, to uh, uh, I think it was the Herald Examiner, which was no longer in existence. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a letter to the Times telling them the story that I just told you. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 uh, they printed it in full. And all of a sudden, my phone doesn't stop ringing. You know, I mean, CNN came out, interviewed me. <laughs> I, they put me on this show, Mystery and Scandals, which, uh, Hollywood Mysteries and Scandals, which, uh, you know, they did one on Bugsy Siegel. And I also got a call from <laughs> the Beverly Hills Police Department, uh, where the, it's still an open case. Oh, my. And they said, what did he tell you? <laughs> and the cop told me that, you know, they were aware of it. He said, look, if if he didn't pull the trigger, he had to be there because he knew things that he wouldn't have known otherwise. Yeah. You know, so, in fact, I, I even co-authored a book called Family Secret about, the, you know, the Bugsy Siegel thing. And I, I wrote a short story based on... It's in my book, uh, Dracula Meets, it's a book of short stories I wrote called Dracula Meets Jack the Ripper and Other Revisionist Histories, and it's, uh, <laughs> one of the stories is a fictionalization of this encounter with, which, you know, I expand on it, uh, yeah. on this thing with, with uh, Eddie, but anyway. Uh, what's your, what's your Bugsy Siegel story? Uh, no, I'll tell you off air. Okay. <laughs> that, that's bad. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, as you, you say. You did it? You're the one who really did it? No. <laughs> No, I, I am not a gun person. <laughs> I promise. I wouldn't have even tripped him. Okay. <laughs> Unreal. You know, maybe we ought to do a separate show on the on the gangsters too. I'd be. I, lo- I love uh, chatting about. Oh know, my goodness, that that is just so cool. Tell me, in in Basil Rathbone's 
entire career, which do you think was his best era, and which is your favorite? Well, obviously he made his best pictures in the 30s. Mm-hmm. That's when all the, all the great films were made. Uh, I would say that uh, I love Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Um, I like him in Anna Karenina. Um, I like I love Sound of Frankenstein. I think that's a fun movie. Uh, so I, I would say those are my um, and Marcus Zorro. But you know, I think I said that my, my interest in Rathbone was not so much the Sherlock Holmes, but the Swashbucklers. Mm-hmm. You know, so. And that and that was your favorite. He did some children's recordings. Yes. And I've listened to some of them. He also, <clears throat> excuse me, did a recording, a radio show, excuse me, of um, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, and he was Scrooge. Well, he did a musical on uh, on television. Uh, this, in fact, I have that on DVD. It's uh-huh. The Stingiest Man in Town. Yeah, and, and I, you, you did mention that in the book. But his, right. radio, his, his voice recordings, I thought were dead. They had, I'm I'm guessing that I needed to see him perform this. He did some children's work. Um, He did Mr. Toad from Wind in the Willow and a couple of other things, some some fairy tales. Hmm? Disney made a movie called Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Uh and and he narrated the Mr. Toad uh, section of that. How did he do? Well, I enjoy the movie. Uh, Bing Crosby did Ichabod, the Ichabod story, uh, you know, uh, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was fine. Um, uh, you know, I have not listened to a lot of his recordings, to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, the focus of the book was uh, on his films. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the TV shows and the, um, and the recordings were mm-hmm. secondary. Yeah, know. his actual and acting. Was, and, and this was also done back in a time, written in a time, when there was no home video. So the way I, there were so many movies of his that I wasn't able to see. Um, I, you know, I was, uh, I, I had contacts at the Los Angeles television stations, I had friends there. So some, I would say, could you schedule this and this and this? And they'd schedule these, these movies for me so I could watch them at at yeah. home, and the, and other one, there's one station I forget which one it was. They would let me go into their screening room, and they let they give me a 16 millimeter projector, and they let me run the movies there. So the, you know, the, and then you know, I rented some films, mm-hmm. but it um, there were a lot of things. You, the, 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 like I've never seen the last of Mrs. Cheney, uh, and uh, which. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's coming out on DVD, or I think it's just been released on DVD. Um, I'd never seen the Bishop Murray case where he played Philo Vance. I caught that on um, TV a few months ago, and I'm, it's one of those pictures that I, I don't really want to ever see again because it's really <laughs> a terrible picture. It's, you know. uh, Rathbone on film was not a good leading man, I don't believe. I think he, he, was, a, came, uh, he was much more effective as a heavy because his te- you know he probably was a better leading man on the stage than on film mm-hmm. um, 
you know, there's a strident quality to his voice, which doesn't go well with a, there's not a soft, he, he's not, he, 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 it was difficult for him to play soft, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, you know, even his physical characteristics, his profile, for example, is, or was, very sharp and very stark. Two which, umbrellas stuck together. Pardon? Two umbrellas stuck together. <laughs> That's what this Constance, actress Constance Collier, I believe, said. It oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> that poor man. That poor man. But he didn't look like a, a leading man either, so that was a strike against him. Right. Uh, on stage, he, you know, he could play leading men. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but not on film. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How about the Un-American Activities Committee? Did he get caught up in that at no, all? No, not that I'm aware. I, I never heard of that. Okay. There were so many in Hollywood who got Well, caught. one of my ex former clients was one of the Hollywood Ten, Edward Dimitrik, the director. Wow. Bad time. Bad time. Represented him for many years. <laughs> so, you know what? I'm, I should be making a list here. You're going to have to come back seven times. What? B-Movie. Tell me about B-Movie, your work. Okay, B movie is a is a play I finished about a month or so ago. It's a, it's been published by and it's available on Amazon. It's a story of what was probably the most sordid Hollywood scandal of the 1950s, first half of the 1950s. Uh, certainly, you know, the, it was uh, knocked it was it knocked off the throne when on the Marilyn Monroe, not uh, the Lana Turner, Johnny Stampinato uh, killing. But it, it deals with a uh, leading man, French Antone, very dapper leading man, used to be married to Joan Crawford, uh, you know, did movies like Mutiny on the Bounty and um, Lives of a Bengal Lancer, you know, many things like that, um, who fell for a blonde bombshell actress, Barbara Payton, who's probably best-known film is a Jimmy Cagney movie called Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye. Uh, Tone met her, fell for her. Uh, but, but Barbara Payton, shall we say... Is this in a, a, a family show? It's a family show, so you can get the message across without using Shall we say she uh, slept around. There you go. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, if you come across, she, she kept Confidential Magazine, which was the scandal magazine of its day, in business. I've come across so many covers where she uh, of that magazine where she's on, on the front cover, involved with Bob Hope, Guy Madison, uh, uh, you know, many other people. Um, but she did movies. She did movie with Gregory Peck. She did movie with uh, Gary Cooper. But she had this terrible reputation, and uh, but Tone fell for her, and then she got involved one day when uh, Tona was back east uh, uh, on business. He was a very wealthy man, independently wealthy, uh, with a B picture actor by the name of Tom Neal whose probably uh, best-known film was a B-movie called Detour, which is considered a minor film noir classic. Um, and she got involved with him, and, you know, it's a very 
wild relationship, and Tone comes back, and one day she's going with Tone, one day she's going with Neil, and then uh, one night the three of them get together, and and Neil beats uh, beats uh, Franchon Tone to a bloody pulp, and overnight turns him into a character actor. <laughs> it was that bad. Tone essentially, I, I later, uh, very quickly after that, married Peyton and lasted 53 days because she was go- she kept going back to Neil. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I can see why it knocked everything out. Oh, yeah. Eventually, you know, Tone moved back to New York and ha- continued to have a very good career as an actor. Barbara Payton, you know, was and Tom Neal were blacklisted. Uh, she got into drugs, was arrested for prostitution. Tom Neal left, left Hollywood, moved to Palm Springs, became a gardener. Several years later, he, he uh, was, pro- he was uh, prosecuted, first-degree murder, although they convicted him on a lesser charge for murdering his wife. Spent eight years in prison. Um, the only personal contact I had was shortly after I moved to Hollywood. Uh, I lived in an apartment building, and Barbara Payton was my neighbor. <laughs> Never met her. Used to see her around the pool. Boy, you're and, good. You got Barbara Payton. You got the mafia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a very colorful. <laughs> we need to follow you. You know, around. I've re- I've let I I I've I've had. You know, I, I consider myself lucky because I've led a very, I've had a very interesting life. I've met a lot of, got to know a lot of interesting, well-known people. Yeah, I've written two memoirs. You know, uh, uh, one's called "My Forty-Five Years in Hollywood and How I Escaped Alive," and the other is called "Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Hollywood." So, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I wanted you to talk about your play Rathbone, but. Before we do that, I don't want to miss an opportunity to ask you about Basil Rathbone's grandchildren. Tell me what your thoughts are about them. Well, I, you know, I, I, um, when I decided to do the play, I wanted to get more depth on them yeah, yeah, than, uh, than I did on this book, uh, on, on him. So I, I, I had I originally made contact because... Uh, the grandson had contacted me several years ago, wanted to, to get a copy. I, I Before this new book came out, uh, the, the new version of mm-hmm. the paperback, I had photocopied one of my books, copies of the book, and I advertised it, and, you know, people would buy it directly from me. It was not a published book, but I, I, it's a photocopy of mm-hmm. The, the hard band. And he contacted me because his son was going to play Tybalt, his grandfather's role, in, uh, or his great-grandfather's role in a school play. So, I, you know, I sold him a copy of the book. And mm-hmm. I, I, so I, I had kept his email, and I, copied, I, I, I contacted him, and I told him what I was doing. And he gave me a very nice interview. He put me in touch with his two sisters. They gave me a very nice interview. And um, there was no relation. As I said, uh, the two girls had met him. Uh, one, um, one, one of them had, had gone backstage when he was doing J.B. on Broadway, and uh, 
he, he was very nice to her and all that. Didn't see her again. The other had gone up to the apartment and met Wita. And, uh, uh, you know, for two hours, and couldn't stand her. <laughs> she was. Another one, when he was in, in, in Hollywood doing, I, I guess it was Ghost in the Visible Bikini, uh, one of the daughters had called him, wanted to, was in Hollywood, wanted to get together with him, and he, I think, was embarrassed at what he was doing there, and he, he put her off. But that was the only contact they ever had with their grandfather. The, 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 the families did not talk. I mean, after this break, and uh, I guess it was in the late 30s, early 40s, the father and son, and they just went their separate ways. And he, because of Weta, you know, he uh, in deference to Weta, he, he had no contact with his son anymore. What about the two daughters? Oh, you mean the granddaughters? No, he had an adopted daughter. Oh, and... oh, you're talking about Cynthia. Uh, yes. Cynthia uh, died shortly after Basil, I, and it's all been very vague, but the feeling is that it was a drug-related because she couldn't stand. We, we just drove her to it. Mm. She did, she, you know, and Basil uh, was her salvation, and then he died, and there was nobody to protect her, and... And now, nobody, you know, has said this definitely to me, but that's the implication what people believe, that it was uh, a drug-related thing. Yeah. What a shame. Yeah. Do you think, and this is opinion again, I understand, was Basil Rathbone a happy person, a sad person, mad, um, satisfied, content? Give me an adjective. I don't think he was a happy person, no. I think he was happy when he worked, was working on the stage. Um, I think, uh, I think Weta uh, made, uh, you know, he, he acquiesced to Weta because it was easier that way. So he surrendered his personality. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, um, there is some talk that, you know, he was not... He was not completely faithful to her in Hollywood. Um, I have not been able to verify, you know. Yeah, I almost want to cheer for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've heard of, you know, make a great play. In fact, I was thinking of doing, <laughs> of, uh, there was a very famous actress that he may have been involved with. I, and that, but I, I'm not sure. I've been hesitant to to do anything with it because uh, I'm not 100% yeah. sure. And uh, one thing, I, you know, I like, I like my, my work to be, yeah, I take dramatic <laughs> license, but it's got to be basically true. You don't want Eddie. <laughs> yeah, I don't want it. <laughs> He's got friends. All right, tell me about the play Rathbone that's available on Amazon. Yeah, it's a, uh, a one-person play, and it takes place, uh, I would say about a year before his death, and he's in Hollywood making Ghost of the Visible Bikini, and um, we just on the phone to him, giving him Cirrus, you know Cirrus, <laughs> and um, uh, then he thinks back on his life, and he begins to. Uh, we learn things about Weta, you know. He, you know, he begins to realize that. Um, 
this is not, you know, she is not what she, he's always believed her to be, and, but there's no, at this point in his life, what is he going to do? He's, um, you know, he's come to the end, you know, where's he going to go? Yeah. He's just got to go on. But it's, it's essentially a, 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 a oral biography of him, mm-hmm. and uh, Rita is, shall we say, the villainous for the piece. Did he acquiesce to her so often and so consistently because he loved her or because she had such a towering personality? Or other? I would say other. <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, he defied her a couple, you know, uh, but when she didn't want him to quit uh, Rathbone. I mean, they were making a very good living, mm-hmm. you know, with him doing Rathbone. But, uh, but... You know, and he defied her in the um, in the early '30s when he, uh, he quit Hollywood and went back, you know, to uh, to um, uh, New York. He was happiest doing theater, and um, uh, but I, I, I don't, you know, I. I Hard to know. I, but, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you know he had accepted his situation. Hmm. The old you made your bed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so play Rathbone. That's the title of the play, Rathbone, is available on Amazon. It's also on Kindle, too. All all, all my plays are available on Kindle. On Kindle. Hooray. How about Nook? How does Nook tie into that? Well, Nook is is a different system. I... um, uh, I, I think the only book of mine that's on Nook is uh, the Dracula meets Jack the Ripper and other revisionist histories. I uh, uh, I tried to put start putting some of my stuff on Nook, but uh, my publisher put the, that that one on. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a it's a totally different system, and you know, dealing with the uh, changing the files and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. you know, it's. I get more important things to do. <laughs> well, I'm important. I have a nook. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, you can you can you can download Dracula means Jack the Ripper. That's, I, my my ears just perked up when you said that. that that'll be good. <laughs> we have been talking with Michael Druxman about Basil Rathbone and other life experiences. And my gosh, you've had a bunch. He is. Um, the author of Basil Rathbone, His Life and His Films. It's available on Amazon. It's available through BearManorMedia.com. Our audience um, has heard that name before. We've, we've had several people because of the genre that uh, Bear Manor, um, you know, the, the eras, I guess, and uh, the genres that they carry. So you can find his book at BearManorMedia.com. Dot com. That's like just like a teddy bear. BearManorMedia.com and Amazon.com. Michael, what should I have asked you that I didn't? I can't think of a thing. You know, I mean, well, uh, you know, I, I like you say uh, we should. You know, you want we should do a show on gangsters. We should do. A... <laughs> I, but I really on that one, I can't think of a thing. I really want to do the gangsters. <laughs> This is great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. And, boy, did I trounce on our time. Um, Yes. Does this thing run forward? You're going to have to edit it down. No, we don't. Oh. 
It'll run the whole thing. The whole thing. The whole oh thing. Oh. And it, it has been good. What did I say? Did I say anything I shouldn't have said? No, you didn't say anything bad. <laughs> <laughs> we would have gone oops. No oops there. No oops. Um, maybe okay. Barbara Payton, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the name of the play is B-Movie. I'm very proud of it. I hope uh, your readers will take a, a read to it. I, I think that would be terrific. Um Michael, thank you so much. Walden, if Michael stays on the phone, can we have some off-recording time? You bet. So, hold on. Audience, we're just going to play a radio show, and Patricia and I will join you after the radio show. So, here is a broadcast. <laughs> 